0: Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. Ladies and gentlemen, wherever you are in the world, welcome back to The Caring Economy with me, Toby Usnick. Today is a super fun show for me because I have my pal, Zheng Jaming, who I've known for several years now. He's born and raised in mainland China and spent his career all over the world, starting out as a broadcast journalist after college and then rising to the heights of running corporate communications for HNA, the conglomerate the Chinese conglomerate that has airline and other big companies here in New York. And then going back to China where he launched his own very successful firm. He is the founder and president of Task Force China. Welcome to the caring economy, Jiming. Thank you, Toby. I'm very happy to be on the show. I feel like because of COVID in particular and your move back, to ch- not even your move back to China, we just haven't caught up in person for so long. Mm -hmm. Well, no, I was going to China pretty much quarterly, mainland China, over the past five years, and then the world changed. Um, So it's so great to be with you tonight, uh, my night, your day. Uh, Ximeng, tell us a little bit about your career journey, how it all began in terms of your your upbringing, your education, your formation, and uh, how you got where you got today. Thank
1: you, Toby, that is a very good question. I'm so flattered that I could be part of your guest because you know, uh, I've been following your program and I know that you've been interviewing many of our industry leaders and also the thought leaders uh, of the public relations, broader marketing communication, also the CSR field. So I've been very privileged to be part of this show and you know, I would be very happy to share more about what's going on in China, because as you said, I've been working internationally I've been helping different companies to to, to communicate in a very different cultural uh, environment. So um, a little bit about myself is actually I grew up and I was raised and born in the northeastern part of China. And I started college in Beijing and I majored in public relations at one of the top communication universities in China, which is called the Communication University of China. So I started this um, career uh, with public relations and broader integrated marketing communication uh, uh, starting uh, at a fresh year of my college time. And then, you know, it's a very interesting journey because I can speak very good English and I always wanted to be a news anchor. So I've been trying to train myself in two trap. One is to be a professional communication specialist and the other way is the anchor news anchor thing. But I think you know, the two jobs are actually in one track because it's all about communicating with other people uh, with uh, the broadcast uh, platform or without that we use a lot of different media. So I, I first, right after, uh, right after graduation, I started my PR career with Weber Shanwick Beijing. So I was working with a corporate team. And uh, we've been helping a lot of multinational companies um, to deal with their corporate communication requirements and helping them to tackle crisis and also help them to to be more um, prepared in front of the crisis that is happening in China because we all understand that China has a very different media landscape. And also you you, you need to embrace or you need to deal with um, different type of stakeholders here in the China market. Um, and right after, I was very happy that I could be part of the Albright, uh, Albright Stonebridge Group Beijing team. Uh, we know that Albright uh, Stonebridge Group is actually was founded by Madeleine Albright, the former Secretary of State of the United States, and also Sandy Berger, the former National Security Advisor. So we have a team that can, uh, uh, the China team that we have colleagues in Beijing, Washington, and Shanghai, we help multinational companies to deal with their eng- stakeholder engagement and policy advocacy and also the government relations and also we help many companies to deal with their um, issues and crises here in the china market as well so i was very happy to be part of this conversation because at that job uh, we were able to enjoy a sort of honeymoon a period of time between china and united states right. and i was very privileged to be able to working with so many top-notch experts uh, related to public relations and public affairs and also international relations. And we did something very positive because we, uh, our team and also our counterparts in, in the United States, we tried to facilitate dialogue on all fronts that hope that the two economies, the two largest economies by then, uh, can work uh, better together. And right after that, I find it it is a little bit frustrating because I've been working with um, senior executives of the international companies, uh, global CEOs, vice chairman, and also vice president of public relations or uh, government affairs. But I find it very interesting is that as an individual, I could be easily impress um, my client you know, during their role shows, during their engagement activities in China with the government officials. But I find that there are so many knowledge gap or understanding gaps between um, China and even the most successful business leaders in from the West. So I find it there are two way the one way is that um, for the Chinese side um, Chinese people are never good storytellers um, that yep. is something that I have to frankly speak That's is basically yeah. Uh, yeah it's a stereotype that is sometimes the facts because we we have a totally different weight of narratives. So basically trying to engage in a dialogue in an international field, uh, for, for some people who are not very fluent or confident in the English language or international setting, it'll be challenging for any of the Chinese people to be able to express themselves freely and confidently, You know, like the Western style. That is one thing. And the other thing is, I do believe that uh, the, how to say that, uh, the communication branch of the Chinese government or uh, what well, we say that the spon- state-sponsored media mm-hmm. are not doing in a way that um, can be more, you know, relaxed mm-hmm. and trying to tell a story that is more universal. Mm-hmm. Although I respect all of my colleagues and all those government officials that are trying to do the thing, and I think that all countries are doing trying to do the same thing. It's just to use a uh, public relations, you know, practices and to use the expertise that we draw from communication theory, and even propaganda theory. Uh, to actually to influence people and to engage with more stakeholders. That is something that everybody has been doing, but I do believe that for our, uh, from an international perspective, the Chinese state-owned enterprises or the state-owned uh, state-sponsored media should be, you know, moving forward in a more market-driven way, in a more international way. So, um, so, so you were at Albright, and then then you went. So then the then realized China. that you know I, I I hope that I could be part of the workforce for for CCTV News, which is China Central Television, the English news service. Very and I was very happy that I, I was part of the audition for, uh, uh, for an entire new team of broadcast reporters. Um, and um, I was very blessed that I got, up, uh, I, 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 succe- I succeeded in the audition. I get inside of the CCTV News as a reporter and also later as a sub-anchor. As we said, we have a dual anchor system that we work together to put together a show, um, so that was a very fascinating experience. Because you know, when you are working for a foreign company or working as an agency, you are literally generating uh, news. You are actually planning all those kind of things. Mm-hmm. Um, and but while you are working for a, a media agency, if you are working as a reporter, sometimes you are exploring the country. You are exploring the evidence. You are you are doing all things that you can do to be very investigative, to try to put together a show or a news package. So I was blessed that I've been working there for like two and a half year uh, with CCTV news. Uh, what I wanted to do is basically to do something that is different from the traditional way that Chinese narratives going global. I wanted to tell a story that is more human, that is more diverse, that is more, um, how to say that in in a way that people wanted to understand about China because everybody is wondering how this country can develop so fast and what happened over the years any things that we can you know any things that we can learn from and any of the you know disadvantages that we can avoid so you, i think could, that is a could, job that is very interesting could you give us an
0: example of one of those moments where you sort of put the human element into the story
1: Actually, I I think, you know, working as a reporter, especially for um, CCTV news, because they are one of the most influential media outlets here in China. So, for instance, like the August 12th uh, in 2015, there were two major uh, blasts or explosions taking place in the port of Tianjin, uh, right like 200 kilometers from Beijing. So it was a very disastrous uh, event that, you know, uh, one of the uh, warehouse of the Tianjin port actually went explosion. Um, and uh, I was the first uh, English speaking re- news reporter covering the issue. I actually understand that it was very urgent. So I, 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 take a, I took a cab and just to drive me like three hours and then we were there with my cameraman. So when you are there um, at the very front line of reporting a disaster like this and also the fire is still burning the explosions are taking place occasionally after the main explosions you find that you know it's urgent not necessarily to figure out what has happened but what can be done uh, the first thing is uh, the thing is, is still evolving and we know there are chemicals there are some explosive that are still in dangers mm-hmm. so as a reporter you don't necessarily wanted to criticize or started to finger point what's going on, who is doing wrong. You wanted to care about the vulnerables. Yep. Uh, you wanted to care about the local government, how they evacuate the local residents. You wanted to know how the, the, the wounded are treated in the uh, <clears throat> in in the hospitals. And also you wanted to know how the corporations are are leaving because their their operations are suspended or suspended. And you wanted to cover a lot of things. So these are the things that are non- ideological. Uh, it is for, I I was just right. following the instinct of a reporter that wanted to discover the truth. And, you know, you, you try to bring something that is live and that is fresh, and that is not finger pointing at the very beginning of this event. You find that you, first of all, you fulfill the responsibilities that you have as a reporter. And the other thing is that when you have a human angle, you find that your stories are, are least are very very um touching in a way that you presented facts you presented uh, the reality and also you hope that this thing things can move forward I, I think you know other people may may judge that you know there is always a state sponsorship within the within the within the media outlet like you know everybody's been criticizing that there is no such you know uh, for, for 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 the reporters, but actually what I have what I can say is that we enjoy a certain level of freedom when we wanted to cover something that is that is newsworthy, that is journalistic, and also the the challenge is basically we always say that you can never judge a book by its cover, mm-hmm. but for a lot of international audience watching the Chinese state sponsored, because nobody can be you know, everybody is vulnerable or anybody, everybody is just suffering from their own stereotypes. So nobody can really, really looking into a, a issue or other people in a very objective way. Um, but, but what I've been trying to do is just how can I do something that can actually get people heard first and try to understand, to know the facts before they judge.
0: Which seems to be sort of one of your career talents, really. So so from CCTV, you move on, but throughout, you've always put, I think, a higher purpose in your work, in your storytelling as a journalist, your reporting and research and whatnot, to your corporate communications and public affairs work, um, which is so consistent with the message of the caring economy, right? Yes. You, you mm-hmm. can make a living, but you can make a life by... Making a living while making a difference—it seems to me. So, and you've done that. How? So, where did you? So CCTV. Then you went to HNA, or how, how did it unfold?
1: Yes, I—I I was I was relocated to Shanghai, and one of the field reporters in Shanghai covering the whole we call it the Yangtze Delta region mm-hmm. news, which is one of the most economic dynamic uh, region in China. And I was very privileged that I could be part of the G20 summit in Hangzhou in 2016. I was part of the team covering the summit. So um, then I pick up a call from a headhunter. He said that there is a very interesting job opportunity. Are you interested in? And I said I'm totally enjoying this kind of a TV thing because you know back then I was very very dynamic. I like to go after the news, and I I did a lot of really really interesting breaking news segments. So I wasn't ready to embrace my old PR role, but actually that job was you know. Even from now, I find that that job was challenging. It's working with h Group. You know, h uh, and Group was one of the, you know, front runners um, in the 1915, starting from 1915 to 19, uh, no, not 1915, no, 2015 to, um, to 20, let's say, 18. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, Tell yeah, our during- H;NA about H&A Group, because we know that some of us know the airline, Premier Luxury Airline but then all the conglomerate properties were truly global and China going out into the world and investing and acquired, right?
1: Yeah, so it was a very large company and a a company that growing from China, they have an ambition to operate globally because the nature of their business, they're in the airline business, they're in the tourism business, they're in the logistics business, and also everything follows after that, centered with their core business on aviation so i was very blessed because you know that period of time that a lot of chinese companies are going global it's like the japanese are going global it's like the saudis they are going global so whenever a newcomer of global globalization enters the, the arena the center stage You know, the Westerners or the international press, everybody is curious. Why are you here? Where did you get the money? And what are are you going to do after you acquire all those kind of assets? Can you manage them? And, you know, there are a series of questions. I think they're genuine, right? They're genuine in a way that, you know, people need to be responsible for their jobs and also everybody is curious. But the, as as I said, that you know, it is not you know, it's a fresh experience for a lot of Chinese companies when they are trying to go global. It is one thing to sell their products globally, but it's another thing to manage globally. You know, as a true global company, I think you know, for the British culture and for the American culture, uh, because of the nature of their culture, they're very very how to say that they are global, global business. Global. Yeah, because of the culture thing, because of the the system, the legal system, History, the political system, all of that. Yeah, it's it's easy it's easy for for any company from the English speaking area and even for the French companies to actually to expand globally. But for China, I think the China style globalization dates back to like three three hundred years ago or even earlier than that. It's just mm-hmm. basically China has a totally different system of the regional globalization, like you know the. The, the Belt and Road, we called it, is now very being politicized issue, but actually the Silk Road and also the Maritime Silk Road was there for thousands of years facilitating trade between the East and West. Yes. So I think, you know, for Chinese companies, it's very difficult for them to to actually to support globalization, especially at a very frontier of public relations, how to issue a press release, how to respond to a media inquiry, and also how to deal with the different stakeholder, and also how to How to work, how to persuade the regulators from a different culture to understand that they come in peace. So I think that is a job that I find very fascinating because you know it is a nature of business that it should be global, but actually a lot of things happen as there are geopolitical factors. There are also huge management issues within a large company. And also for globalization, every company needs to draw lessons from. Ah, uh, draw lessons from other uh, uh, frontiers. So, so that job gives me very interesting access. That I could be traveling across the world, and I can talk with different people, talk with media representatives, reporters, and uh, engage with uh, on behalf of the Chinese conglomerate. You know, find it very interesting to actually to to make their debut on the international stage. So it- that's why we 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 met each other in New
0: York. Yeah, we met thanks to Richard Aylman, as I recall, um, who I'd love to have on the show. Um, But is it fair to say, though, that a lot of people back then in particular were looking at you as a representative of contemporary China and thinking money and probably not you personally, but dumb money is also a stereotype that about five or eight years ago, China was going out into the world and spending and investing, but it was not perceived as necessarily sophisticated but not that it wasn't sophisticated but in Mm -hmm. the west I think people thought oh they're Chinese and they'll just pay for anything which is not my experience at all but I wonder how a if you agree that that was part of the dynamic then and b how you dealt with that because you were the frontline ambassador for this Chinese conglomerate so I'm sure people had expectations of your being the big funder and sponsor of their tennis tournament or their golf tournament yeah
1: i I have to say i have to say that is something that happens as i said happened to the japanese and happened to the middle east money so I, i think that is something that people will naturally fall into those stereotypes and of course for chinese people going global you can see that you know a lot of chinese rich people they they go outside of china they buy luxury goods and they you know a lot of you know, people from the Western world, they believe that these are the Chinese people. They are wealthy, they're uh, very fashion, and they they wanted to live a luxurious life. And also for those kind of deals that were done during the period of, a, I have to say, aggressive globalization from a Chinese perspective, mm-hmm. I, I do believe that we, uh, the Chinese companies are paying a lot of premium trying mm-hmm. to get the assets. You know, it's not a fair, um, it's not a, sometimes it's not a fair deal, but actually, you know, uh, a lot of people, especially in the business world, in the in the financial world, and also in, in the media world, everybody tend to be optimistic. I have to say that is something that we all need to confess. So whenever whenever there is an opportunity, the, the, the investment banking guys they wanted to get the deals done. And people who have money wanted to get asset. And people who wanted to sell their asset wanted to get it done as soon as possible. So I think, you know, it was a climax of people. You know, getting it to it, it, get get uh, met each other and find that there are so many synergies. And one thing led to another. There is aggressive globalization for Chinese companies. So answering your question is yes. People just see Chinese companies as you know aggressive buyers of the world, no strategic planning. And sometimes you know even for some of the business leaders from China, they know that you know it's aggressive and you know people need to think strategically. But you know from a perspective from the China perspective, because China was growing very fast. And if you don't seize the opportunity, you will never have the second opportunity anymore. So I think, you know, there is always a fine balance between risk and opportunity. Yeah, so
0: so, so where we are today, starting, to interrupt, Jimmy, but so now contemporary China, US, mm-hmm. during the pandemic, we're not even post pandemic, you're further along, I think in China, but still we're in the moment what's the reality now do you think in terms of of international business and to some degree corporate social responsibility but just more broadly are Mm -hmm. is china ready to go out into the world again is it going out into the world again is it prepared is it wiser now
1: i I think i think i think the term of globalization you know, the definition of globalization will be changed, will be revised because of the pandemic and because of the nationalism, because of the geopolitical fights between countries and cultures. So I think, you know, we can, from my understanding the globalization will never go back to where it was like 20 years ago or 15 years ago. So we need to redefine the new globalization in a way for business, for governments, for NGOs and for all those kind of philanthropic charities. Uh, From what I see is that because of the pandemic, because of the shutdown of international communication, you know, meeting face face to face and, you know, having physical interactions with each other, get together on a reception, know more people and get yourself, your culture, your company exposed to a wider community is what we do, right? Even with CSR and the caring economy concept, we wanted to engage with more stakeholders to get them on board of what we are doing. Yeah. So I think you know at this period of time, globalization will never be the same. That is something that I, I think a lot of my friends also agree with me in China. And the other thing is I find that it is even more important for companies or governments to, to start to re-kick off the dialogue with other stakeholders uh, from your culture group, uh, uh, from your cultural group, or not from your cultural group, to restart this dialogue in a more genuine and more human way. It's like what well, we've we've been saying that although there are so many differences between China and the United States, but as the two largest economies in the world, we definitely need to we definitely need to work together to solve some common issues like the climate change issues, right? Yeah. So from that end. We need to be very imaginative. How can we incorporate all those kind of concepts of kindness, of responsibility, of genuine human interest mm-hmm. into our day-to-day jobs Baring. to depoliticize a lot of issues that shouldn't be politicized in the very first place? So that is something I think that you know, like you and I working in Beijing and New York, we need to do more to facilitate that kind of discussion. Is First of all, we need to acknowledge that globalization will never be the same. And because of the pandemic, because of the nationalism, because of the geopolitical fights, you know, understanding each other requires a depoliticized vehicle, I think, which is the CSR and the philanthropy, the caring economy concept, Thank is you we so need much. to care about each other.
0: Thank you very much. Again, today on The Caring Economy, it's an honor to have my pal for many years now, Jing Ximing. He is the founder and president of Task Force China. Ximing, I want to ask you a little bit more about that in terms of CSR. I, I agree with everything you've said. And yet, after all my years in China, I feel, and I'm, ai think, a, a champion for contemporary China. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't, I don't I don't deny that there have been rough patches in China's past to say the least, but I think contemporary China is a different story. I think of you quite frankly, as sort of my China whisperer. I think of you as a spokesperson for contemporary China because you are, you're in your early thirties, you understand millennial and Gen Z's and you understand old fogies. And I, I just am optimistic about you about what Mm -hmm. you and your peers have shared with me in my travels and work in China these past five years. And I feel that it's not necessarily heard or understood in the West. And so Mm -hmm. I wonder if you agree with that and what you might want our listeners
1: to know that they don't know or try and understand. I mean, going back to the question is that Chinese people are, are never good at telling stories. Sometimes, you know, Chinese people are being humble and they don't want to brag things about. So for me, it's like I'm only, you know, I, as I said, I'm I graduated from a communication university of China, and I've been I've been blessed that I grew up with a generation of young people that are so talented, they're so inclusive and international. So I think I I only I'm part of the community that em- embraces diversity, embraces challenges. Um, that is something that we see totally different from the. From the Western world, Western world at the moment is because we see a lot of young people in the Western Western world are frustrated about everything that is going on.
0: Mm-hmm. But if
1: you come to China, if you see, if you really get to know the people, you will find that this is not something that some weird thing that you know comes out from a very standardized national education system or anything mm-hmm. like that. It's basically this kind of dynamics, and it's very spontaneous. Everybody, because we witness high-speed growth um, throughout our career and also throughout our growing so basically we we have faith in the future and we know that it is only possible to work harder and to be innovative in order to get a better life mm-hmm. we never wanted to wait for anybody to, to to give a helping hand or just to give me the food and there is and we, we had this conversation last year when we debuted your book here in China Is that we said that philanthropy should be something that you, you don't give people the fish, you need to teach them how to fish. Right. So for, for, from the contemporary China, as you put it together, I think if we define that period of time is basically, I think after the reform and opening up in the ni- late 1970s. So the China has been changed dr- drastically. And some of the narratives and some of the narratives that are controlled by the mainstream Westerners are very limited because everybody wanted to, to selective artic- articulate certain things and issues they care about. So mm-hmm. a lot of discussions that is happening on the Western uh, press, I, I find it very biased because I can navigate both Chinese culture and English culture. And I can just to be a fair judge in terms of all those kind of things you know, unfolding in front of me. So what I've been saying that, you know, um, for a lot of people in the Western world, first of all, Chinese people are coming in peace, but you know, it's a 1.4 billion country, people country. So Mm -hmm. there's always a minority group that are trying to be more aggressive or tend to be, it happened in every culture. But Mm -hmm. uh, what I can say is that, you know, every time I came back to my hometown, or if I'm, if I'm done with my international travels, I came back to China. I always find that Chinese people are overwhelmingly welcoming. They're just so nice and they, and they, I think you agree with that as well. So the point is that the, the press, the mainstream press, because of the political issues, they wanted to demonize Chinese people. They wanted to demonize Chinese mm-hmm. culture, but unfortunately it is not the same. It is not the truth. Yeah. It's basically if you come to China, if you interact with Chinese people, they're just simply very interesting. Uh, a community of people who enjoy life.
0: <laughs> so, uh, uh, well, I would agree with that. I would say two things. One, one does, and I say this to clients all the time. One does not need to even get on a plane to engage with the mainland Chinese community, right? You can, Mm -hmm. Chinese diaspora is real. It's significant. It's in higher education institutions, corporations across the world. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And with WeChat and other means, there are ways to actually talk and get to know young mainland Chinese people without even getting explained. And two, I have been struck over and over again with ambition. And I mean, in a positive sense, the ambition Mm -hmm, of Chinese mm -hmm. people, I mean, it is not, it's about bettering themselves They're hungry to learn, hungry to genuinely spend time and hear from me or others, Mm -hmm. not to gain financially necessarily or to get anything other than better themselves. And I think something this country, the U.S. has always had as part of what made this country great. Yeah. And I notice it more
1: among things are changing in China. Than here, quite frankly,
0: yeah,
1: yeah. I think the interesting thing is that we learn a lot from the Western world. It's basically if you wanted to get a bigger slice of the cake, you you make you bake a bigger cake. But mm-hmm. now, from from the Chinese perspective, from what I see uh, from the Western world, is basically people are not only because of the growth issue, because you know the economies are not growing as big as fast as possible. So basically, people are trying to cut a bigger slice of existing cake. And people are just wanting to have this kind of a zero sum competition, which I don't think that is good for our humanity. Right. But actually from the China perspective, from the, even the Asian perspective, talking about ASEAN economy, talking about Southeast Asia, South Asia, when people are still living under, most of the people are living under the poverty line, they wanted better life. And you know, when you wanted a better life, you wanted to better yourself. The, the only way to do that with the population growing, you need to make bigger cakes. So that comes from, if you want the bigger size of economy, you need more investment on infrastructure, you need to, more, you, you need to consume more energy. So that, from that sense, you know, taking the responsibility on the carbon issue from the developing countries and even from the underdeveloped world, our responsibility from themselves, because we've already done our ambition for, 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 for 200 years, Right? right, from the Industrial Revolution. So you, you need to always care about other culture there because they are not as well-established as what, the, what most of the Western world has been enjoying over the years. Mm-hmm. So I think that is a fair requirement or a fair you know, thing for, for everybody wanting to pursue a better mm-hmm. life. So coming back to China, what I see is basically uh, the stereotype thing, will never die. But, you know, such dialogue and conversation from different cultures, we can agree, disagree with each other, but we always wanted to hear the other side of the story. So let me just ask you a little bit about,
0: quote unquote, the other. So you talk about trying to go out in the world, understand the others, but in China, what's the reality with say the Uyghur in the West that we hear about or LGBTQ disabled older folks? Ha- what is the reality for in terms of social justice in China?
1: First of all, you know, from my from my from my experience growing up in China, when most people will be criticizing that, you know, you've been, you know, how decided you, you've you been you've been turned out to be in a very standardized, you know, process of education, of propaganda, you maybe suffer that. But I think I turn out to be fine because the, the level of freedom that I enjoy here, I think does not hurt my growing up as a decent human being and even as an international uh, citizen, global citizen myself. So when we touch upon all those kind of issues that are not sensitive here in China, we, I have friends from Xinjiang as well, and we have a lot of discussions about, you know, how to, how to work with ethnic minorities. And even for the Xinjiang issue is, are you one of the, you know, are you suffering the terrorism that is actually taking place in the region? Mm-hmm. Because, you know, there is always a very, you know, due to standard thing is that when you are suffering from uh, issues that are, that are hurting yourself, you are always being defending yourself. But if something that is not happening at, uh, at your front yard, you don't give, you don't care that much. Yeah. So talking about all those kind of issues, um, especially in Xinjiang, it's been politicized, and uh, the companies that are being part of this political game has been hurt because of their decisions. Um, I don't have firsthand knowledge about for instance, about the BCI thing, the Better Cotton Initiative that was happening like one month ago, when people are just discussing about how an international initiative can be so politicized and how international companies are so uh, misinformed uh, by making so many uh, important decisions for their supply chain, right? Because it's not only a political decision, it's also a business decision. Uh, And also when you are facing a large market, consumer market like China, when people are saying that, okay, we are literally not trying to be a terrible person by, you know, imposing our advantages as the largest consumer markets by, you know, persuading you to do something Mm -hmm. that is not up to the you know, standard from the Western standard. But, you know, at least you need to be informed before you make all those decisions. So as I said, I don't have first-hand information in Xinjiang because I have been, I haven't been traveling there, but I do have friends that are telling me that is not the case. So before I can go in and investigate on myself or if there is no authoritative third-party international agencies can give the evidence, I think the the interesting part is that we need to trust people we trust. Mm -hmm. Um, So that is how I get the facts that I believe that, you know, there are frustrations from certain minority groups, especially for the LGBTQ community here, as we said, because I've been working with some very leading LGBTQ companies here in China Mm -hmm. talking about same sex marriage. It is not only a thing that is a legal process, but it's also a cultural process. And also, it's also a Asian culture perspective thing. Mm-hmm. It's not only happening in mainland China, but it's also an issue that is open for discussion in many other Asian countries. So if you are understanding this certain issues in a more, you um, uh, in a way that you are more informed with the historic context, with a cultural context, mm-hmm. uh, most of the people will never reach into conclusions this fast. And they will try to discover more. And that is something that I believe that governments across the world are losing credibility. It's mm-hmm. because they always wanted to present themselves in a very, very genuine way. That while they're politicizing issues, while they are losing political trust with each other, the dialogues are tend to be very difficult to restart. So, Jiming, <clears throat> I,
0: I want our audience to know that if and when they want to work in China, they need to know you and speak with you, uh, Task Force China. Um, so how does one find you?
1: I, I mean, I mean, we, we we tend to be stay low profile because I, I was blessed that I, I could be able to working with so many renowned institutions, uh, corporates, and also fascinating experts in the field. So I started this company in 2019. So I've been blessed that a lot of people are referring business to me. Mm -hmm. And we tend to become a boutique style, um, full service agency that can help people to really, really solve the issue here in China and outside China. So we help a lot of Chinese companies to engage internationally as well. So uh, I think you can find me on LinkedIn uh, uh, and also I'm on Twitter. I'm always happy to have conversations with you, Toby, because uh, you've been a role model for me uh, for this career. And also, I think, you know, uh, I've known you and your family for so long. And I think, you know, post-pandemic, we would definitely do more things like this. I'm mindful of the time, Jimmy. I want to ask you one last
0: question about... Mm -hmm. um... Again, corporate social responsibility, way forward. I think China is some of your clients. You're working with the largest, if not the largest, one of the largest solar manufacturers in China. Yes. I think there's a lot to be optimistic about coming from China
1: on climate. Um, But what do you think? Is China doing its part? Yeah, I've been working with some of the world-renowned, excuse me, Um, I've been working with some of the world-renowned companies that are in the renewable energy sector. Mm -hmm. and um i was blessed because of you know you know be part of this kind of uh, journey that is moving forward in the next 30 uh, three decades five decades is trying to you know we create a net zero world altogether it is not only a job for the world uh, uh united nations in new york it's not only a job for the major economies or the governments but it's also a corporate thing uh but why is that important because if we wanted to undergoing a transformative uh, energy transition we require you know an upgrade of the infrastructure that we have now for instance everybody is shifting to evs electronic vehicles Mm -hmm. but if we are charging our evs with non-green electricity we are not helping the issue Mm -hmm. we are just uh, partly helping the issue and if we are using the evs that consume that emit a lot of carbon dioxide that means that we are not eco-friendly as. Well, so it is not only a job for one government, for one corporate, or even for one citizen. It is a thing that for all humanity. For instance, my client's Longi Group is a listed company in China, and they are one of the largest manufacturer of PB PB products. So the thing is that they've been helping to innovate, and with their help, they invested a lot of things, a lot of money on R and D, even as a, a listed company. And even compared with the industry average, they invested a lot of money on R&D. And the result is because of their lab results, because of their manufacturing facilities improvement, actually now the solar prices or the PV prices are only 10% that of 10 years ago. And why is that possible? It's not only because China is the largest manufacturing country, it is also a country that embraces a very large, ambition to shift its energy sources into more renewable one. Mm -hmm. So uh, China has a lot of places for such massive application. And then these sort of companies can use these advantages, both domestically and internationally, to actually to upgrade their products in a way that most of the Western countries cannot imagine. By making cheaper products that are more available, not only to the countries, developed countries like German, Germany, or like the United States, like the United Kingdom, but also for developing worlds. Mm-hmm. And that is something that is transformative in yeah. a way. And uh, by working with all those kind of scientists, guys, and business leaders that are, you know, majored mm-hmm. in physics. And I I I find that you know the, the way that they pursue business success is not only only on how we you about know, a build a bigger team, mm-hmm. they really care about a decarbonized world. They really, really care that this is something that can be solved with technology. Again, ladies and gentlemen, again today, it's been
0: such a privilege to have the founder and president of Task Force China, Jing Jiming. I hope you'll come back because we haven't begun to scratch the surface on so many <laughs> of the stuff, social media, TikTok, WeChat, and just yeah. much more. So Jiming, let's think of this as our first chat and we'll get you back later this year.
1: Thank you so much, Toby. I'm very happy to be on the show. And it's always nice to have those these inspiring discussions with you.